Hey, Bridgetown, John Mark Comer here with Richard Probasco. Richard, thank you so much for coming. My pleasure. It, it really is a joy to have you here. Some of you who pre-COVID used to go to the 5 p.m. gathering, I'm sure you recognize Richard. How tall are you? You're 6'5 six, six, or something five. like that? Yeah. Yes, sir. A bit hard to miss. You tower over me, and I'm 6'2 and a half or something <laughs> like the half. That matters. And Richard, you are a bit of a legend in our city. You've been pastoring here, do I have it right, 53 years? Is that right? Yeah, 53 years. Last Sunday was your church that you planted's 43rd anniversary. Yes, sir. Correct. And how far away is your church building from the basement we're sitting in right now? Like just over a mile, right? How far apart is our... Yeah, we're just yeah, just about a mile. Yeah, it's close enough that pre-COVID, we were texting to try to go on a prayer walk from your building to our new building and then COVID. But... Here we are three months later. And so you've been pastoring in this city for over half a century. And uh, I was trying to remember this morning where we, how long we've been in relationship. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was like 15 or so years ago at seven. Um, those of you that were around back in the day, we used to do an annual week of prayer and fasting. I remember there was this iconic, I think it was the first year or the second, we did a Saturday morning prayer gathering at Council Crest Park. You got it. Is that right? You got Which it. Which is the highest point in the yes, city. Sir. And there's a spiritual, like the, the, the pastors went up 100 years ago to pray there. And we had over 1,000 people show up. And it was too much for the bullhorn. And so we had to, on the fly, break into four different groups for the four different quadrants of the city. And I think that's where you were there with your community. I was there. And we're like, hey, can you, what's your name? What's your name? Can you take Northeast? Can I, was, is that right? That's exactly it. You know, when I was when thinking of that, that put an indelible impression in my spirit for you. And, and I, I've been trying to, to piece it out the best way I can. But something locked in my spirit with you yeah. on that, that particular day. And I didn't try to shake it. Yeah. And so it's grown and continued to grow. And from that day until this, I can honestly say, I've been praying for you and for Bridgetown. And God brings you to mind all the time. Yeah. I used, it's, I'm blown away by that. And, you know, I don't even remember how, whatever that was, 15-ish years ago. Yeah. And we've been in relationship ever since. And you have been more than a kind friend to me, though you have, and you come visit our church every few months and yeah. pray for me and bless me and encourage me. And, but really a mentor, both as a, a pastor in this city since before I was born and as a father of a multiracial family. Tell us about your family really fast before we get into your story. Well, I have, I have six children. I have four boys. Like you do. <laughs> four, four boys. Two girls. Okay. Two girls are a natural birth between my wife and I, and the four, all four boys are adopted. But the fun part about it is our oldest boy is total 100% Caucasian. Okay. Our second boy is, is biracial. Okay. Our other two boys are Romanian. Oh, my gosh. The first two boys from the foster care system? Yes. Got it. And then international? International Ukrainian, adoption. And then two biological daughters. Yes. Oh. I just want to come over to your family for Thanksgiving dinner or something and hang. Well, so don't ever tell me, you know, I don't, I, don't, I raise someone like you that looks like yeah. you. <laughs> oh my God. So don't tell me I don't know. I know. Yeah, but I mean, you've been, and I know, and when I talk to you, it's just to have your wealth of experience, you know. So um, we were chatting last week or something like that and, you know, calling to check in on you and you, you know, in, with the recent aftermath of George Floyd and all that is behind that, which is obviously nothing new at all. The unrest is the current moment, but it's nothing new. 
and you were in a really tender place. And I think you said, hey, you know, I know we've been friends for years, but I think you said, I'd love to sit down with you and maybe just a few of your leaders and just kind of tell my story. And so I said, yes, but how about instead of me and a few people, can we have a camera in the room and just can our church hear your story? And so I, th- I think we have the relational equity that it's appropriate for me to ask that of you. Oh, yeah. And so that's really all we want to do today is in lieu of a sermon, we just really want to adopt that posture of listening. And we, and we want to do that. And just hear your story, if that's okay. Oh, yeah. I, I'm so grateful to be able to tell a little bit of this story. And part of the story that I want me to weave into it is how I believe that we, we got so intertwined and connected. Because that's the piece that I think you need to know. Yeah, I don't think, I have no idea what you're talking about. So <laughs> let me hear. Okay, so let's just start at the beginning. Sure. Um, maybe this is an inappropriate question that we have to edit out in a minute. But what year were you born? 1946. 46. Okay, so I'm so bad at math. That makes you 74. Yes. Is that right? Just well turned 74. done and so full of life and vigor. 46 on the east side of the city. What neighborhood did you grow up in? I did grow up on the east side of the city, which is kind of an anomaly to itself because how that happened is pretty interesting. Okay, tell me, tell me the story. Well, I, th- I think the story is pretty interesting because... We grew up in a house over on 16th and Clinton, between 16th and 17th and Clinton. In Got it. In our southeast. The, yeah, in southeast. Which now is like food cart, hipster, progressive capital. Right. But I'm guessing it was not like that in 1946. Back and forth. Well, actually, my parents bought the house in 1943. Okay. In a red line district where blacks were not able to buy. Yeah, it was, Ill- was it illegal or just the banks would not loan? The banks wouldn't loan and, and it, it was illegal to buy. Yeah. Okay. And so, at the time, were, were the banks and the government and the city pushing the black community to North Portland at the time? Or was it still in Slabtown? By then, it was North Portland, right? It was, it was North Portland at that yep. point. Because Pre-Lloyd was, Center. It was pre-Lloyd Center, but as fact, it was in the shipyard days yes. when everything was at Vanport. Yes, exactly. Oh. After okay, World War II. Got it. And so what happened was my mom was working for this lady, and, and she had this house to sell. She says, she says, I know I'm not supposed to do this, she says, but I'm going to sell you my house. She says, the banks won't loan you the money. Doesn't matter to me. She says, I'm going to sell you this house. She says, what you're going to do is you're going to deposit $50, every, $50 a month into my account until it's paid for. Then I'll sign it over no to you. No way. People were livid. What? Like neighbors? or well, well, yeah, because what do we belong there? And here's the interesting thing. All right, it was an Italian neighborhood because there's the Sirianis, the Amatos, and uh, a couple other of uh, you know, high-profile Italian people. Well, our name Probasco sounds Italian. So yes, can you imagine knocking on the door of the, the Probasco- Probascos are here and open the door and say, "Oh my goodness!" It's like out of a co- oh my gosh. It happened more than once in the early forties. In the early forties. Now, when you were growing up, I mean, did you realize like what was your awareness of that as a little kid growing up in the neighborhood? Like, did you realize like it's not legal and people are angry that we're here, or was it? Not in your radar? I think, yeah, the legal part of it really wasn't the situation. I went to Abernathy Grade School, which is about 10 blocks from there. Mm-hmm. And we were one of the three, no, I think there was four black families in that particular school of 500 kids. Got it. And so the rest of the people that were black, they lived over near the railroad tracks on the other side of the railroad tracks. We mm-hmm. were actually in a house, in a place, in a neighborhood. Got it. And so we were privileged to have that particular thing. And so it, it, it created a dynamic for us. And so. And your family goes back generations in the city, right? Did, did I hear you say that your grandfather was a pastor in town? Okay. We go back. My grandfather was out on 66th and Duke, another situation where he wasn't supposed to be able to buy out there. 
and he was a part of the Azusa revivals in-, in No way, the Pentecostal, Pentecostal for those of you listening, that's where the Pentecostal movement was born, greatest church history growth. Holy Spirit baptized 1909, started the, the first church that there was in Portland from that particular thing. It was and that was a multiracial church. Yes. Um, Seymour, what was his name? The William. black pastor, Seymour Williams. William Seymour. Was the pastor, but it was a multiracial church, right? Well, it became it a multi- became that. Because he, he was this black fellow, and then all of a sudden, a lot of the whites came to this particular movement, and of course, they outnumbered the blacks that were there, and pretty soon that broke out. And this is down in LA in what, 1906, right? Yeah, 1906 to like 09. And then my grandfather started his church in 19. I think it was 1912. So your grandfather started a church out of the Azusa Street Revival Correct. in L.A. up here in 1912. Yes. Oh, my On the goodness. corner of, let's see, was Ankeny and MLK, which is MLK now, which was, which was Union Avenue back in those days. Wow. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> you were killing me. This then is- they moved to uh, 10th and, and um, uh, Grant Street. And did you grow up in this church? Yes, yes. And, and was it Pentecostal church, non-denominational? Well, well, it was, was it a Pentecostal church. But here's the, thing, the dynamic of it was from the very beginning, that church was multiracial, which was not known in that neighborhood. Yeah. But I didn't know a difference. Well, yeah, well, there's, there's Sister Wells or whatever, and she was white and she played the accordion, which an accordion in a black church, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> which is what she did, you know, so it worked. And so that's, that was kind of, that, that kind of seeded me for what was to happen in my future. Wow. Okay, so you're growing up in Portland. You're in your grandfather's Pentecostal multiracial church. Yes. And you went to Benson High School, right? Yes. And rumor has it that you were class president. Okay. That is an interesting story because uh, my, in my senior year, my, my mom said, you should try to become student body president. I'm thinking, I don't really want to do this. She says, no, you really need to do this. And my mom was a very whiz, very wise person. And she says, you have the personality to do this type of situation. So out of acquiescing to her desire, I said, oh, I know how to fix her. So I decided I'm going to run for president, but I'm going to take up one poster and I'll put it in the back hallway near, the, near all the, the, you know, the uh, labs and that type of thing where nobody will see it. And it said, Dick Probasco for president, vote for me. <laughs> that was the only thing. That's the only thing that I did. Okay. So I did that, and then there was two other guys running against me. The other, one of the other guys who were running against me was Dale Franz. His dad owned Franz Bakery. I'm thinking, there is no way. <laughs> no way. <I'm>, no. <laughs> Another guy, his, his dad was involved in mutual of Omaha. They're both really super rich kids. Okay. So we do this particular thing, and then we have the, the, the assembly, and I give my little speech, and, you know, and I ended with something like, so help me God, you know, whatever. And so they, there was a day of, of the... Um, uh, of the election. And so they're hanging out to see what, what the election's going to be. And so I went home and I said, there ain't no way I'm going to win this thing. So I went home and I'm just kind of chilling at home and the phone rings about, about 6.30 in the evening. And so it was the principal and he says, well, congratulations, you, you won the election. I said, <laughs> that's how me who really, who really yeah. won. He says, no. And then the, then the background, I, could, I, I hear Dale Franz and, he, and he's swearing and he's saying, you, blankety blank, whatever. France you know. Bakery guy. Oh, yeah. Oh, he was upset. And so, and I said, well, what was kind of the spread? I mean, how, I mean, I won. won. Yeah, the vote breakdown or? I, of the 1,400 votes, that, 1,400 some votes that were, that were cast, I got 1,169. It made the newspaper. Wow. And I'm thinking, oh, what? my goodness. Okay, what year was this? 1964. 
1964. You were class president of Benson High School in 1964. Yeah. Kennedy died in 63. I was class president in 64. Now, that's right in the middle of the civil <clears throat> rights movement. In the middle. Were you, Martin Luther King Jr. came here. Were you ever around him or in any of those rallies? I wasn't in any, any of those rallies and that type of thing. But the thing, I wasn't really aware of, of so much of the black-white issue. I was still kind of stunned. How did this happen? Yeah, tell me what that experience, because I'm sure you're, you already from birth have an experience of racism with your family, but then you're a class president. What's that? Well, Talk to me about what that experience well, was, it, like. it was It was strange for me because also, if you look at our yearbook in that particular year, I was voted the most popular kid in school. How does that happen to a black person in, in 1963? 64. 64. I'm thinking, what, what's going on here? But then... Uh, at that point, well, like, for those of you that don't know Richard, it's actually not that hard to believe. <laughs> no, but but anyway, so so I, I I roll it back just a little bit. I I became a believer when I was nine years old, mm-hmm. felt the spirit when I was ten or whatever. Yeah. And my grandfather said something to me. He says, "You're called to be a leader." I had no clue yeah. of what he was talking about. But as my life has gone on, he put that deposit in you. He put a deposit in me, a huge deposit. So one other quick little story. One time when I was four years old, we were at church and he was preaching. And so I snuck out of the bench. And I was probably about three and a half years old. Snuck away from my mom and, and, and they used to have those big pulpits that are, you know, like the Hesperus, you know. And so I snuck behind there and I was grabbing a hold of my, grand, of my, my grandfather's leg while he's preaching. And my mom's, oh, she's all against, oh, I got to get him out of here. And so she was going to go around there and get a hold of me. My grandfather said to him, leave him alone. He's right where he belongs. Wow. That was the beginning. When you were a toddler. When I was a toddler. Wow. And I honestly, I don't know what people believe about that type of thing. Yeah. But something was imparted at that particular time. A destiny and a deposit. Yeah. Yeah, What a gift to have that heritage of faith in your family, even through all all of the pain, you know, of our country and our history. Um, So then you get out of high school and then you became a pastor at some point. Okay. In there. Well, that's another right, part. Because you were at a church in town for 10 years before you planted right. New Song. Well, right? th- well this, is, this is during the 60s, during the Jesus People movement that, that broke out down in California. Right. And some of the hippies from there came up to Oregon, and they started this house called the House of Rainbows with Adrian <laughs> Simola and a bunch of other guys. You're kidding me. And the, it was like a house church or like a Christian well, it, it was like this prayer group, and they're kind of the hippies with, yeah. with, the, with you know, House all the rainbows. banners and, and, and patchouli oil and the whole nonsense. And so they're, <laughs> but they decided they're, they wanted to come to a church, a charismatic church. And at that time, it was Wendell Wallace. He had the church there. And so he invited them into the church. Now, this is an all-black Church of God church. And so I, because they came to my youth meeting on Friday night, so I said, why don't you come to church on Sunday? Oh, my goodness. Now, we're talking about racism, racism in reverse. These white folks with blonde hair show up at the church. Hippies. With hippies yeah. with no shoes on and this other type of thing. And these, these women are going, oh, my God. Oh, and uh. <laughs> they're ready to faint. Because it, and, and it, but it started a revolution in the church. Wow, really? So, so I, I'm, and this I'm, is the 60s. This is in the 60s. Okay. And so they came, and then, then we started a youth meeting on Friday nights, and that exploded to the fact that that more people from outside the community were coming from Lake Oswego, from, from other particular suburbs were coming to this church on the corner of 13th and Skidmore in the heart of black America. Wow. In the very heart. And of course, their, their parents, oh my God, my kids are going to die over there. 
but they couldn't stop them from coming. Wow. And then they're getting filled with the Holy Spirit and this other type of thing. And then I'm a, somewhat of a musical background, so I said, yeah. well, I know how to do it. Not do somewhat. This. You're like travel the world <laughs> as a musician. Yeah, I didn't mention that in the intro, but not but it, somewhat. Yeah. But anyway, so, so we started a youth choir. And the youth choir grew from like 25 kids to 113. We traveled. Multiracial. We, multiracial. We traveled. Uh, we got to sing in just about every high school in Portland. We sang in MacArthur Court in Eugene. We went up and down the West Coast. That's what God did. You know, I mean, we're hearing like the highlights of, you know, yeah. multiracial church in the early 1900s and the 1960s and mm -hmm. people driving in. But I'm sure there's a whole other underbelly. Like what, what has been your experience of racism in our city? And, you know, every city, you said this on the phone, you're like, you know, he's like, I can't speak for black people all over America or whatever, but every city has its own story. Mm -hmm. And you know that story far better than I do. And even than many others. So what's been your experience of our city? I'd love okay. just to hear that. Well, let me whatever tell you, you want to share. I okay, mean, let me tell you the, the first sense of racism that I encountered was from my own brothers of color. Okay. They thought for some reason I had sold out to the white man. And that's how people came to my church. And I was blackballed from a lot of things in the black community for years. Because there was so much, just such a divide? Well, it was a divide. Well, it was the fact that they, they had, I had done something either illegal, immoral, or whatever to attract people to the church. And I and like I, unders, I undersold the black community. And to be honest with you, I was an outsider for a long time because of the, you can call it, I don't want to call it success. I want to call it the fact that God was using me in this particular role, and they couldn't figure it out. But then let me switch over to the other side. Then when I go to some of the meetings, I would be invited, and there'd be a, a lot of uh, white pastors that were there. The thing that hurt me, well, I didn't say hurt me the most, but I'm thinking, I'm there for a little bit, and first of all, they want to know, how many people are in your church, and blah, 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 and where are you located, and blah, blah, blah. And then they, here comes the question. Classic Do you have any questions. white people in your church? I said, really? I said, and at that point, our, our they church- They would just ask it, just boldface like that. Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And I said, I said, you know, and at, at that point we had, our church was 93% white, 7% black. And I said, I said, well, we're, I said, we're at about 93% of, of, of white people. I said, but would you pray with me that God would send us some more black people? I, 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 would, I did not, I, I was being honored. I was being mean, but I said, I am tired of you folks messing with me as wow. far as that's concerned. And they, they look at it like kind of stunned, like, oh, and turn red faced. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. I said, then what way did you mean it? Yeah. I said, I learned a long time ago that God saves souls and not skins. I said, are you going to penalize me because Jesus is using me to, to draw people to him? I said, I don't look at people's color when they come through the door. And so, anyway. That, that, now, that must have changed over the years, right? Like, oh, I was chatting, I did not even know this. I was chatting to a friend of mine who's in my home community mm -hmm. who moved to Portland from L.A. in the 90s mm -hmm. and was, like, shocked at how white it was. Mm -hmm. And so she came to New Song. They lived in the city at first mm -hmm. and loved it, sat under your pastoring for two years. She's like, he was my pastor. And she said at that time there were very few white people in the church, and then mm -hmm. they moved out to Beaverton type of thing. So that there must have been some kind of evolution yeah, well, over well, the decades. Oh, well, it, it switched back and forth. Now, if you, if you look at the percentages, uh, as far as black to white, as far as it's concerned, it's probably, I would say, about 65% white, 35% black. Okay. What do you say? Yeah. 
So it's gone back and forth it's got, it's gone through back the and years. Forth. It, it has been. And your neighborhood's changed so much. That's, that's the dynamic. Too. You want to say anything about that? You don't need to. Well, but. the neighborhood is, you know, especially around, you know, the core, which is, which is Williams Avenue. Yeah, it's the heart of gentrification in there the city. There are and so many apartment buildings. They're finishing up a couple more, as far as it's concerned, with hundreds of people in them. And it's literally driven, driven the people out into East County. Yeah. And so it's just decimated the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, chatting to you and Mark Strong. It's like, what do you do? You have these beautiful buildings right in the city, but most of your community has been yeah. moved out. Yeah. So it, it, it's a tough one. It's, yeah. it's really a tough situation. But if I can just start looking at what, what happened a few weeks ago with, with uh, George Floyd, I, I, I guess it's a time for me to just kind of just really go public yes, how much it, it hurt me. It hurt me to the degree that I didn't know I could be hurt because I've been able to navigate the storm pretty much. And one thing I discovered was there's a part of me that I was a survivor in this particular area. But when I saw what I saw, I came up with two conclusions. Two conclusions. With one, George Floyd's with George. death, yeah. I said, it could have been me that was that particular person. And then something inside of me just was so broken and and... John, I cried like I haven't cried in my life. Yeah. And it was over, over the brokenness of, of the fact of, of what happened. But, uh, and I guess it was kind of a thanks, but God protected me to this, but I can no longer live under that protection or illusion or whatever you want to call it. And there's something that, that's left for me to do for people who are suffering on that particular level. I think that God has granted me a, a, a whole lot of grace and, and favor as far as it's concerned, but not for the sake of me just to say, well, it's never happened to me before and that type of thing. It did something so deep inside of me that my, my, one of my reasons why I'm coming, with you, coming before you today is to hopefully offer some things to people, what they can do yes, and what they, what they need to do. And it's more than just a sympathy, sympathy or marching in the streets and telling them how bad it is. But the question is, when you see someone hurting on that particular level, are you so judgmental about what you've heard about what black people do and how they are or how they live and this other type of thing that it keeps you from really acting on a heart level yeah. of what God is telling you to do? Yeah. The one thing that I would say to you, and you may ask me this, or I think you probably would ask me this, how have you survived all these years? Yeah. I made one decision that I do not regret. And not just survived, you've somehow kept your heart tender. Well, and, and uh, which to, and I would not blame you if you did not, you know. But well, I, you I, do, I mean, you have kept at least my experience yeah. of you has been overwhelming in your kindness. Well, I I chose I made a choice to not be offended. Not and if 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 offense had come along, not to hold on to it, to weigh it in the balance of maybe they don't know me or they don't know what I would want to do for them or how much I would love them. Hmm. And so I, I said, I'm making a choice. If, if I'm misunderstood, whatever, I, I, I refuse to be offended. I, I won't do that. I want to just. Do you think that was the right decision, or do you think that just I put don't the pain regret deeper? It at all. Hmm. Now, when, it, when some of these things surfaced with George Floyd, it reached a place in me of saying, you know, you really have been injured. Yeah. And you've, you've put it aside too long. You put it down. And so. Yeah, I mean, when we were chatting, I want you to keep going. Sure. When we were chatting the other day on the phone, you said you'd not slept for two nights. Yes. And then in tears, I think, I was, you yeah. know, through the yeah. ear pods. Yeah. 
that I don't remember your exact language, but you said something to the effect of that you were the most distraught that week you'd ever been. Ever. And I was thinking like, ever. you were here in the civil rights movement. Your family was redlined. And this week mm-hmm. is the week that you feel yeah. the most pain. And are you saying that's because your survival defense mechanisms were mm-hmm. just so high mm-hmm. that you had to just bury that and, and you were let it, starting to let yourself feel? Yeah. Well, I saw it. I, I mean, I saw it and I had to, I, I couldn't deny it. Yeah. And I saw it before my eyes. And, and I know people quote the thing, I can't breathe or whatever. It's more than I can't breathe. It's, it's the fact that you don't want me to. You won't let me. Hmm. And you have control over the situation. And if it's up to you, I'll never breathe again. That's what, that's the message that I got. It was like a person that sees some sort of an animal there that they want to kill. And they said, I'm going to hold you down until your last breath is drawn. And so that's, that's what finally got through to me. And then the decisions I made along the way to be an inclusive person in my heart. Uh, last night, we had, we had a prayer walk in our, in our neighborhood. And a, a person showed up that, Paul, I'll, I'll just give him, I won't give his last name. He'll, if he sees this podcast, you probably know it's him anyway. It doesn't matter. But he shows up. And then all of a sudden, I had a flashback to about the mid-80s. When he was in a band called The Receivers, it was a punk rock band. And they came to our church on a Sunday morning, him and some of his other cohorts, this type of thing, in their regalia, looking like these punk rock folks and this type of thing. And, and this after the service, and they were just really, really uh, in, into it. For things. It's a white guy, I'm white guy. guessing. Oh, yeah, yeah. the whole white, white <laughs> man, all the stuff. All, all, and, I mean, they were, oh yeah, hair, everything. You know? yeah. And so after it's over, I'm out there greeting folks and this other type of thing. And I walk right up to, to the head of the band. His name was Jerry, Jerry Jefferson. He says, oh, how are you doing? And he told me what church he was from the, or what church he had been around and this type of thing. And so, so Paul comes up to me. He says, well, my name's Paul. And, such and, such. and I said, oh, I was really glad to meet you as far as that's He says, and, and I don't know whether I asked him about his parentage or whatever, but he says, he says oh, I don't have a dad. I, he says something about my mom never married my dad or whatever, this type of thing. I says, and he said it in such a way, it, it rang something with me. I said, what you do now, I'm adopting you today. I'll be your dad. Now here's this white guy, he looks at me and the emotion that's in him, I mean, he loses it, I lose it, we connect. And it's been that way for the last 30 years. Wow. Why that happened, and this happened to me on several occasions, and other people would say, well, why Even would you- a tiny bit with me, you know, not to that degree, <laughs> but like, you've been so fatherly to me. Yeah, and, and so, so and, and so he showed up at the prayer walk last night, and I wasn't expecting her because he goes to a different church. There's been a lot of things have happened, been through some things. And all of a sudden, that emotion came back, and I was in that foyer, you know, some 30 years ago, mm. looking into this kid's eyes. I said, I don't have a dad. And I said, you have one. And I said, I meant that. And so he texted me, the, he texted me this morning. He, said, he says, because I'll be praying for you that you'll impart some of your wisdom when you talk to John Mark. And, and then I texted him back. I said, I said, I'm still your forever dad. I love you. Yeah. That was, is part of the healing factor for me. You know, I've had several of my friends who are raising children of color, like say, what do we do right now? You mm-hmm. know, um, any advice you have just on parenting and, and racial justice and anything at all? I mean, we are all ears. Well, well, well here's the thing. Just like it says in, in uh, Micah 6, 8, to do justice. Justice is something you do, not something you, that you look to have done. Yeah. 
it's, it's an active participation in making that particular change. But part of doing justice is, is not being afraid of the truth and telling, telling children at the level they can understand what's really going on. Right. Not only the fact you don't sugarcoat it. No, or... it doesn't work. Yeah. Because because it'll come back to why didn't you tell me mm-hmm. that it was this? Now the other part you need to really realize: my mom was was from up north, my dad was from the south, and he hated white people. When I took the job at Maranatha Church as, as a youth pastor, pastor there, this is what he told me: he says, "You can go over there with uh, I can't remember the exact word he said. Um, you'll become." Uh, Oh, you'll become a white folks inward. That's what you. That's what you become. And because you've cho- they made that choice, don't ever come back to me when you were poor and don't have anything. No. And way. he cut me off. Your dad. Yes, he did. So very different than your grandfather. Yes, cut me off. Did not talk to me for years. I, I would go by the house to talk to my mom. He would go in the other room. He would say he didn't say anything to me for years. Because you were almost like a traitor to him or yeah, something. Yeah, right. And, and, and because, well, I, I worked at, there was a station over, it was notorious on the corner of 7th and Knot. It was called Kelly's Mobile. And if you know anyone in the community, they, they know it, it was quite, it was the hangout, okay? <laughs> he was the, he was the person who owned that place. And so, and I worked for him, but then I quit working for him to go to work as a, as a youth pastor, which I was probably one of the first full-time youth pastors in the state of Oregon, whatever. Wow. But the, but the point of it was, and then one time, some of the people that were from my church came in there to the gas station, and they pulled in there. They happened to be white. Oh, he was livid. He says, don't you let any more of them uh, ex, ex, da, da, uh, people into my place again. He, wow. And then after that, he says, and don't come back to me when you were poor and nobody's looking. He says, I'm done. Wow. It stayed like that for a number of years. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, what happened? Well, eventually... When we moved into the, the building over on Holiday Street, some things happened, and God softened his heart, and we were doing the remodel in the building. And for some reason, he stopped by there, and we were putting this, this massive sound system up there, and, and he, he came in there and helped us do that particular thing. And then, then a day later, he called me on the phone. He says, he says, you know what? I'm really proud of you. Those are the, the nicest words I ever got out of my dad my whole life. Mm. And that was that. And that was that. So on both ends, you know, I, I've learned a lot. Yes. <laughs> a lot. It's like you've been in these just so many different worlds. Yeah. What have you, what have you learned? Well, let's come back to the parenting question. Sure. Just mm-hmm. anything you have to say yeah. there. Oh, yeah. Not to put okay. you on the spot, but I, I, I wanted to ask you don't that. Don't be afraid of the questions that, that you... Talk to them young. Talk to them early. Talk to them honestly is what you're saying. Very, very honestly. And... Especially de- depending on their heritage of who they have to be, mm-hmm. do some research on their heritage so they c- they can have the truth rather than the fact of all these suspicions as far as that's concerned. Right now, when I when I got my boys from Romania, <laughs> that was, it was amazing. In, in uh, 1989, when Ceausescu and his wife were shot on CNN, we saw that that live and in person, or whatever. The Lord spoke to me. He said, "You're going to Romania." I had no idea he had the idea that I was going to adopt someone. So I said, "Really." Then in 1993, a fellow came from from uh, uh, missionaries. He said, oh, "I'm from Romania, and this other type." He said, "Would you like to go along?" And I said, "Sure." I went over there and took a group over there, and we did some ministry. And this, and then I turned back in 1995, and I wasn't planning on adopting kids from Romania. We were almost 40 years old. This type yeah. of thing, and so, but then, and you'd already adopted two boys by yep, then, yep, right? Yeah. And so I wasn't looking for anything else, but the Lord just arranged this whole situation. And uh, Peter and Pavel 
they were twins. Yeah. And so I said, well, if, I, if I'm going to adopt Pavel's one. in our church. He's been in our church I, for I know. many years. Yeah. yeah so, so the thing was, so I, I said, well, I'm not going to adopt one. I got to adopt two. And so I, I saw his brother, Peter, first. And I said, well that's, well, that's too bad, I guess. I said, he doesn't have a twin. So I said, that's too bad. And he said, oh, yes, he does. He's over there because they're fraternal twins. And so I was stuck. And they, and they didn't rig the whole situation. They said, they said, we know how you, if you want these kids, this is what you do. Mm. You, just, you just request from orphanage number 12 that you want to adopt twins. They're the only set we have and you'll get them. That's exactly wow. what happened. And what motivated you both time, or three times or whatever to adopt? Like what was the, is there, what's the heart behind that? They, they, they needed a home. This is like the, the, the oldest boy who's now 58. Okay. But the point of it is, he was in a situation where he was at McLaren School for Boys, but he wasn't for behaviors because he was from a small town. They didn't have any place to house him. And so he was there, and we were doing some ministry outreach. And I see this tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid. When you were doing ministry outreach. I'm doing ministry. And it's like the Lord says, you will adopt him. I'm thinking, what? And so, so I took a picture of him this other day, take him home, and then my girl's like, oh, yes, yes, this is going to be our number. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I have Cute just buried boy. myself alive. Oh, oh, no. What did your dad think? Oh, he was livid. Ah. Oh. But I, I, that, that was in the not speaking to me zone anyway, so it didn't really matter. This was in the 80s? What era was this? Yeah, this is this in the, yeah. Wow. What, okay, so that's really helpful on, on some of the, the family stuff. What would you say to, you know, you've been in a multiracial church for most of your life. You've been in black majority church. You've been in white majority church. You've been in a church that was different at different decades of its story, you know. Um, gosh, we have so far to go as a church. But what advice do you have? What wisdom for how, you know, you have people from different ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, you know. I think it'll be for you and your leadership as well. The same thing that I felt that connected us on Council Crest mm -hmm. during that time of prayer together. I looked back at that time and time again and said, Lord, what connected me on a heart level with, with, with John Mark? He says, it was a genuineness in his spirit. And so that's the reason why I kind of pursued the fact of all the different events that you did got involved with him as far as it's concerned is help them cultivate the genuineness of spirit where people do, are not afraid of who you are and th that you're going to be genuinely going to treat them well. Mm -hmm. I have never felt put off or dismissed or whatever it happens to be. And, and what do you mean by genuineness of spirit? Just are, define that for Okay, us, genuineness so of spirit exactly is, is it that you're engaged with them at that particular point and they're not looking for someone else better to come along. Mm -hmm. And because some people do that, oh yeah, and then they're, they're, they're off and running. Yeah. I mean, so to, over the shoulder for the, yeah, the next you, cool person. You, you or, yeah. And so that's been, been my experience. Um, what, I mean, let's just go right to it. Mm -hmm. You know, how, what do you want to say to us, you know, and how can we, we're just more, those of us from the white community and just Bridgetown Church, which is not all white, but mm -hmm. um, all of us, mm -hmm. how can we be brothers and sisters to you, to New Song? Mm -hmm. And what do you want to speak into the life of our church? Continue on the path that is being modeled by you and, and, and your staff. And don't be afraid to ask the questions of how does, how can, it's more than how can I get involved, 
but be willing to confess the fact in your heart that, that you really do have a hang up with certain things that, that you're struggling with. Yeah. Don't pretend like, you, oh, I just, the one thing, oh, I just love black people. I have some black friends and this type of thing. I think, <laughs> oh boy, you, 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 are, you are off yeah. my list. <laughs> oh, no. oh yes, my mom, her best friend was black. And then my aunt Susie, she, oh, oh please. No. Yeah. I get so nauseated. Yeah. I, you, you can't announce it, you gotta do it. Mm. You know, and so and by do it, you just you're meaning relationship to start. Relationship. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, there's more that we want to do. But yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I don't. I don't think you have to go intentionally put up a sign. I, I'm looking for black friends. Would you like to apply? <laughs> I doubt any would. <laughs> well, yeah, no, not me. But but I think the openness. And here's one thing that you know we just celebrated Pentecost several weeks ago. The Holy Spirit, if he's act, when he's active in you will initiate something within you that you need to stop resisting because it's him, it's wow. not you. If it's not comfortable, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. That, is, that, that he, will, he will furnish the thing that, that you're absent and the deficit that you feel that you have. And, and trust the Holy Spirit to do that because I've, I've been in some of the most uncomfortable situations. I thought, I said, oh, I'm gonna die before I get out of here. Mm -hmm. And God has opened that particular door. And I think this is the time for the Holy Spirit to, to renovate all of us, all of the churches. Yeah. And not just on a black issue, it's, it's on a people issue. Yeah, a gospel issue, yeah. a kingdom of God issue. Yeah. Okay, last and final question. Sure. What do you say to people of color in our church and specifically black people in our church? Mm -hmm as they obviously are experiencing this very different from me, you know? Sure. What, what wisdom do you have as a follower of Jesus with seven decades under your belt, you know, for how to lament, how to process, how to be in relationship, you know, with the church? Well, first thing I would tell them, if, if, they, were, if they were here, we had a meeting they just They are kind of sort of here. No, 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 but no, no, if they were here, just, just say it was just the blacks in the church, and I was having a conversation with them, I was saying, I was saying that God has blessed you to be in a safe place with what you are looking for being modeled in your leadership. Mm, I don't know if I can agree with that, but I want but, that to be no, true. No, 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 with you as a leader and, and, and expanding from that particular. Uh, yeah, that, we that, have that, a long ways to go. I know you have a long ways to go, but you something, but at least you're on the journey. Some people would be afraid to take the step that you took. Yeah. And as, as the Holy Spirit is refining you as a person. I've been that, afraid for a lot. That, some people as me, I've been afraid for a long time and not done a good job. Yeah, but, 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 but cast the fear aside and because God put it in your heart. And, and that's the reason why I can feel comfortable sitting before you and I know that you love me. You don't have to prove another thing, say another word. I know that. And because I know that the comfort of Jesus in me because of you is the same thing that they need to have as they're ministering to other folks. Yeah. And that's how that's what we spread around. We there, we could have seminars up the yin yang and and and, and always have a <laughs> which we will <laughs> and and just all these different people and giving their share of their testimonies, but until it happens on a spirit heart level, it doesn't make any difference. Mm. Creating people, that relational space of yeah. incarnational love, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we have a lot farther to go than you think. You, but, yeah. Well, but yeah. we receive that and, yeah. Yeah. and honor that, you know. Yeah. Well, Richard, um, I want to have you just bless our church, if that's not too much to ask. Oh, it's, it's, maybe feels like we should be praying for you, but in Scripture, there's that line, the lesser is blessed by the greater. <laughs> and so I want you to bless us, but I just want you to know that 
on behalf of our leaders, we commit to relationship with you and mentorship from you and mm-hmm. others. Mark Strong's with us last weekend. Wonderful. And we want to continue to listen. This is very short. We mm-hmm. want to spend a lot of time, want to listen to you and many others from all the different generations and all the different experiences and different ethnic backgrounds. And we want to learn from you. And we want to put ourselves in, in many ways, kind of under, not to put pressure on you, but yeah. you know, you, I know you have broad <laughs> shoulders, literally and spiritually, <laughs> under, under your leadership. And just really, this is an area where I, I just have so much to learn and so far to go. And we want to follow you. And we thank God for you. And you, we deserve none of the kindness that we experience from you. So mm-hmm. would you please um, absolutely pray and just bless our church? <sighs> Father, when I call you Father, it's because of, not because of the experience I have with an earthly father, because it so, was subject to so much pain that, that I, I would say I survived. But Lord, I want to impart to Bridgetown, to the leadership, to my, my beloved brother, John Mark, the confidence to know that you're working in them, through them, around them all the things that are necessary to bring them into complete harmony with the will of, of, of the Lord. And Lord, in spite of the things that are happening in our country and, and the pain that I've been processing for these last weeks uh, because of George, the George Floyd murder, that God, I pray today that we'll never have to experience something on that level for us to get, to get our attention, to really want to love you, to serve you, and to serve one another. And Father, help us to deal with those things within us. When, we, when the question was asked, Jesus, of the lawyer says, you know, he asked, you know, who is my neighbor? Lord, my neighbor is the person that, that, that sometimes I, would, I don't want to be my neighbor. I don't want him to move next door to me for all the different reasons. I've been biased in my thinking and my beliefs. And Lord, we, help us to know we don't have that luxury, if we call it even a luxury. But Lord, I impart to them wisdom, I impart to them knowledge, I impart to them grace, I impart to them power, I impart to them all the love that Jesus is that will transcend all the problems that we face. And I pray for courage in the days to come that in our city, we won't necessarily have to have massive marches, but Lord, from each time people come through the doors here at Bridgetown, they will feel the presence of God. And they'll take that presence with them to their home, to their neighborhood, to their job, to people that they'll encounter. And through that healing power of your Holy Spirit, that's with them when they become whole, to have the oneness of the body of Christ, that you'll draw people onto yourself. Lord, thank you today for this awesome privilege of just sharing my heart. And God, I pray grace and mercy and peace upon this church and your anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit for the rest of their lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. 